listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Happy Easter. Uh, grateful you guys can be here. I bet each and every one of you this morning are shocked about what we're going to talk about. All right, surprise, surprise. I mean, this is one of the most pivotal moments in the life of the church, right? We, we sit here and we're aware, as we've heard about and celebrated Easter numerous times, that the reality of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the forefront of what makes the church the church. What makes believers believers? In order to call ourselves Christians, united with Christ, followers of Jesus, the central elements of what that means is that the life, death, burial, and resurrection has a daily impact on our lives. And yet, we can come in here, and I can come in here, even preparing this week for the sermon, with some level of staleness, familiarity, if you will. We're, we're so certain about what the Bible has talked about and the truths of God's word that sometimes we wonder if it loses traction, if there's an element of impact that is lost because of how frequently we're familiar with the story itself. What I want to do this morning is try as my best as I can to attempt to add some freshness or revive the reality of what the impact of the truth of the life, death, burial, and resurrection means for us on a daily level. The reality of the empty tomb is not just something that happened thousands of years ago that then incited a a worldwide religion that has had impact on lives across the world. There's something that the Lord has for us specifically here and now. I'm convinced that the Word of God speaks directly to the people of God in the very specific moments that they're in. So here's what I'm asking, and you can do it personally, but don't, don't leave anything out or leave anything at the door as you come in. All of life sits with you as you sit here in this church service this morning. It's not as though we would need to put on a facade and somehow fake out Jesus that we can somehow prove that things aren't as hard as they really are, or there aren't some struggles that we're wrestling with, that the reality of real life meeting the real Jesus makes a real difference. And that's the truth of Easter, of what we're working through. And so, again, I am incapable of reviving or refreshing Easter. That's crazy for me to even think that I have the ability to do that. But I do believe that the Holy Spirit can. So if you would, before we jump in, I'd like to just pray one more time, just asking God to be God over our own lives. So would you join me this morning as we pray together? Father, we thank you for the goodness of this moment in history, not just thousands of years ago, but the cascading impact, the downstream reality of what it means to look back thousands of years and realize that the tomb was empty. We've heard numerous times over the course of our lives that it it means something for us, that it's, it's something that builds hope. It's something that gives us joy. It's something that allows for some supernatural power over our lives to help define and direct the decisions we make. But we know that without the power of the Holy Spirit applying it to our lives, somehow it can just sound like another sermon again 
and then we can move on to having Easter lunch. would ask that you would just move in our hearts this morning. Draw us to yourself with the realization that the real God meets the real us and instruments real change. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm not sure how many of you are big baseball fans, but I'd like to start off with just maybe a story back in August 7, 2007. Barry Bonds, through his entire career, had been working hard to uh, be as effective and as significant as a baseball player as he possibly could. August 7, 2007, he stepped up to the plate with the possibility of hitting his 756th home run. It would break Hank Aaron's record should he do such a thing. And as he stood at that plate and the pitch came over and sure enough, over the right field wall, he achieved what no one else before him had been able to achieve save Hank Aaron. He, he absolutely 100% broke the home run record that Hank Aaron had for decades. And yet, in the context of his entire life and all that he had worked for, there was a component of concern and curiosity that maybe, just maybe, he had used performance-enhancing drugs. He had denied it the whole time, and yet all of the story came out. And so what would have been the pinnacle achievement of his life, making his way into the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, it came with an asterisk. An asterisk, a, 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 a subtitle, a footnote to his story. And that footnote was what would define the reality of his entire career. You don't think of Barry Bonds without thinking that he cheated to get to where he was at. <laughs> and I wonder if in some ways that reality exists for us. Before we're too judgmental on Barry Bonds and the reality of what he did, let me ask you, I think, the fundamental question that helps us rethink Easter and reshape our understanding of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's the question. What's your asterisk? What's mine? Those things that are the footnote of our life, the appendix that you hope nobody really reads. When we look at our stories and the category of life that we have lived, there are moments that we know are a part of our journeys, thoughts we've thought, things we've done, perspectives that we have had that we had wished and somehow, in some way, would not have been there. And yet they are. Those asterisks are a part of our lives. And so, what do you do? What do we do with the reality of what we know, others might know, but we're certain God knows? I was just thinking not that long ago that there's this new program on the computer called ChatGPT. Anybody familiar with it? So, AI is just taking off. And apparently, there is some thought that it would provide the solution to a lot of different things. And I actually tested it out. And I was curious about what answers it would give me. And so, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. And so, I typed in chat DPT. I said, write a sermon on 1 Corinthians 15. Huh? Wouldn't that be easy? Just roll it out, baby. We are good to go. At the end of the day, I didn't use anything from it. But it's sure enough, it takes maybe less than a minute, and all of a sudden it develops this whole argument. And so when I think about the asterisk that's over our lives, I decided to ask GP, chat GPT the fundamental question. What is the world's biggest problem? That was a question. Here, 
from the AI of all AIs is the answer. As an AI language model, I cannot give a personal opinion. Personal, how funny is that? However, life's biggest problems can be subjective and vary from person to person. Some may argue that it's finding purpose and meaning. Others may say it's dealing with loss and death. While some say it's coping with mental health issues or inequality, ultimately, the answer depends on the individual perception and life experience. Well, how easy is that? So when we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, a gentleman that God had radically changed, that was inspired by God to, to write uh, a book to the church in Corinth, answers that very fundamental question and unashamedly answers it, not with all of these things that you can figure it out yourself and maybe adapt to the situation and the world's biggest problem is based on your own experience. No, no, Paul doesn't, is unwilling to go there. He's categorical in his conclusion as to the world's biggest problem. And so if you'll take a second, the words will be up on the screen, but I'd like to just read for you a, a section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here's what Paul says. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you um, as of first importance, so the most priority thing, the most important thing in life, Paul says, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, also, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am who I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believe. So Paul begins to unfold the answer to that question. What is life's biggest problem? And categorically, Paul would say sin. Sin means anything that is in defiance to the authority of God, to his work, the structure in which he's organized the world and the universe, things in which we're doing things for ourselves, by ourselves, and real life, making real decisions and having things never really change. Sin is that decision where we say to ourselves that we know better than the God of the universe. And so as all of those things unfold, whatever sin might be in our lives, there are constant chronic decisions that we make that tend to disrupt the own trajectory of our lives and really put us in opposition to the God of the universe. And so Paul says the greatest human problem is that, that humanity wants to run by itself. <laughs> we want to do our own thing when we want to do them without ever sensing that being tethered to the truth of who God is tends to be something that we would feel is restrictive and confining. But that's not what happens. 
See, Paul tells us that as we understand the truth of the gospel and remind ourselves of the reality of who Jesus is, we, we get this picture, and he's very clear on what the picture is. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want you to do so as objectively with all of your life and all of your perspectives through the lenses of those events. And in so doing, the conclusion is undoubtedly clear. Number one, he tells us, Jesus is real. He fits all the confines of being someone who walked on this earth, lived a life, did the things that he had did. Miracles were a part of his experience. And so certainly there's a part where even just reading the objective evidence across the spectrum of all of history, we would say, okay, Jesus is real. He's done the things that he did and said the things that he said. The challenge in the context is not just that he did the things that he did and said the things that he said, but that there was a, there was a cross. There was a, a crucifixion. And just hearing the words of what Jesus said that crucifixion meant, it meant that the sins of the world were laid upon him, that sin has always been humanity's biggest problem. It's, it's always that which cripples us. It's, it's, it's our Achilles heel. It's the very thing that seeks to define our experience. And so as Jesus stretches his out, arms out on the cross, we come to this conclusion that he was the only sinless man that ever lived. That means that he never did anything in opposition to the perfect will of God. He followed the law perfectly. He loved perfectly. His compassion was perfect. The things that he did, the life that he lived, he dies as a perfect prophet. But it's not just that Jesus is real historically. The really challenges are the words that he said really accurate in their description of the very essence of the impact of what that means. So when Jesus died on the cross, did it have the effect that it intended? Did it really accomplish that the sin of the world was laid upon him, that, that ultimately it would be that open arm invitation to anybody in the universe to come? and receive a grace given to them that their sins could be washed away, that their sins could be laid on Jesus and his righteousness could be laid on them, that they could really be united to God's family. Did it really have the implications that it had? Well, the resurrection wholeheartedly says yes, a thousand times yes. The resurrection is a declaration that the effect of the crucifixion had the effect that it was intended, that, that he paid the price for our sins and now life is given and the empty tomb means for us that not only is Jesus real historically, but the real God meets the real you in your real life for real change. See, when we look at chat GPT and we try and think about a world solving its own deepest problems, often they're solving the symptoms of the world's deepest problems. They never really get to the heart of the challenge. And the heart of the challenge is that we have made decisions both by will and by choice. By nature, we do things that live and, and communicate that God does not really have a authority over each and every one of us. Each and every one of us sitting here and me even standing here would have an asterisk over our lives. How do we deal with the footnote that we hope no one reads and the appendix of the journey that we've written that we hope no one knows about. 
what do we do with our asterisk? Well, nothing. You can't fix it, and neither can I. But Jesus, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, is the solution to the greatest human problem. It's the only solution to sin. And let me communicate to you that AI will never get us there. Artificial intelligence will never be the source of your life change. And most of us will be like, well, of course not. It might be smart. It might help us on tests or whatever. We might find a way to use it to make our quality of life easier, but it will never solve the deepest parts of the human condition. But just like AI, the same is true for us. You and I will never solve the most difficult parts of our lives. We'll never be able to deal with on our own the fullness and the reality of the human condition. And that's what Paul says. He even gives us an indication this morning of the asterisks over his own life. Here's what he says. I don't really even deserve to be called an apostle because on the footnote of my life in the appendix of my story, I was one of the main persecutors of the church. I did the worst thing imaginable. I was so convinced that Jesus was a blasphemer and a liar that I incited violence. I was present at the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. I was there. I look back on my journey, and here's what I see as I look at it through the lenses of my own life. Epically got it wrong. I'd made enormous, huge mistakes that feel like they could mark my identity. Even as I look at it through the lenses of my own life, I don't deserve to be where I'm at. And yet, what happens as he understands the life, death, burial, and resurrection is that the real God meets the real Paul in real life for real change. See, that's the impact of the resurrection is not that somehow we'll find ourselves living in the midst of this asterisk on our life, but Jesus defines and redefines everything for us. That there is something so unique about being invited into an intimate relationship with God that the the sin that Jesus bore and the freedom and the liberty that Christ offers me as an invitation radically changes everything. It changes not just my past and my present, but it changes how I see myself. It changes the story that I tell. So that when I communicate to you about the change that God is doing in my life as the real God meets the real me and real life for real change, I come to the conclusion that my story, even the darkest parts of it, are worthy to be told because it's where Christ met me. For example, imagine a man named Sam. He lived his life for himself and continued to leave a stream of broken relationships in his wake. Selfishness was a part of his journey. The thought that he knew everything about everything led to consistent fractures in his life and relationships. He always felt like he was the one that was being prejudged, that he was the victim of the world misunderstanding him, and yet in the context of his life, all he could see as he looked back was, a relationship after relationship distancing themselves from him. Loneliness embedded itself into his life. Discouragement was a companion on a daily basis. Yet one day, through the context of his life, he had a friend invite him to church and invite him just to hear and see that God offers a community of faith where brokenness is part of all of our stories. No one is better than the next. 
but Jesus is in the process of implementing change. And in that moment, as he came forward and gave his life to Jesus, the real God met the real Sam in real life for real change. Did his life get easier? I don't know, maybe. There were some moments where he could see hope in the midst of darkness. Some, some things were better, but one of the things that changed fundamentally is as he understood how God saw him, he saw himself differently. That he was now part of a family and a relationship with the God of the universe and that it wasn't his own strength that it required of him to change and be a different person, to be better liked and to not be so selfish and arrogant. No, it was God exposing the areas where the truth of Jesus Christ and his constant chronic rescue of all of that sin was what was changing every aspect of who he was. It wasn't, it was, it, his, his status before God changed instantly. He was no longer an enemy of God, but now considered part of his family. But then there was more change to come, progressive change. His development and growth was God continuing to prune and change and transform his life. See, Jesus is real, not just historically, but even here and now. The very thing that you live in real life, the God of the universe, is communicating to you that Jesus is alive, that the tomb remains empty. Jesus didn't resurrect for a time being and then go back into the tomb and shut the door. No, Jesus is alive. The Bible tells us he ascended into heaven and in the process sent the Holy Spirit that the very presence of God for those who find faith in Jesus Christ is living and breathing inside us now. That you have current hope, current intimacy, current a reality of the presence of God that lives and breathes inside of you who have and have trusted Christ. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is in the process of reminding you the very thing that Paul says is of prime importance. The most important thing in life is to get Jesus right. Jesus was not a prophet. Jesus was not just a priest. Jesus was not just a good guy in a broken world. Jesus is God. And by being God, there is an ability to instrument transformation and invitation in the most real ways. The invitation of Easter is that the real God can meet the real you in your real life for real change. And I think Paul gives us even more of those categories as he continues on. And here's what I think he says that is of, of absolute importance. He tells us that Jesus makes new life possible. So Here's the story, right? He says, okay, there's a life, death, burial, and resurrection, and it wasn't just confirmed by a few zealous followers, right? Obviously, Peter was there, and so he's excited about Peter, but he tells us that just like any historical evidence is verified by the eyewitness accounts of people. Jesus said, I went to every extent. Hundreds of people saw my resurrected body in the empty tomb, confirming that Jesus had conquered death. And in the process, he tells us that it was all in accordance with the scriptures. And after he appeared to James and all the apostles, last of all, of one untimely born, he appeared to me. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Verse 10, here it is. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. 
I'd like to suggest to you this morning that Jesus makes new life possible, that it's an invitation for all of us realizing that the real God meets the real us and real life for real change. He tells us that Paul is not ashamed of the story now that it's been resurrected, if you will, by the power of the resurrected Christ, that the the tomb being empty, Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection has practical implications, one of which is that Paul doesn't need to be ashamed of his story. He looks back and realizes that he was one of the chief persecutors of the church, and he doesn't look at that as a huge win, but he sees it as a place of, this is where I needed grace, that I did not have it figured out. I thought I was such an expert in life that I had figured out all of the religious things that needed to be done, and yet... When God met me, God showed me what I didn't know about myself. (laughs) I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't do it alone. And I don't have the answers I thought I had. And daily, that becomes Paul's rhythm and becomes yours and mine. The asterisk over our life, the footnote, the appendix of our life, is not that which we hope no one knows, but one in which we surrender to the truth of a God who knows all things and communicates to us that there is redemption, there's restoration, there's hope in the darkest moments of life. Whether your story is like Sam or Paul or mine, it doesn't matter. Your story is unique, but yet at the same time, the universal invitation is open to you. The real God can meet the real you in real life for real change. That the most transforming power at work isn't going to come through AI or self-reliance. It's going to come supernaturally from the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life and mine. And that's the invitation of Easter all the time. Sociology, years ago, I was in a sociology class, and they talked about the law of the second follower. Anyone ever heard of that? It's an intriguing thought process as I figured those things out as they rolled it out. And they they have this picture as they talk about the law of the second follower. And there's this huge group of people on this mountainside and they start to play music. And one guy starts to jump up and starts to dance like a crazy person. <laughs> like he is gyrating all over the place. And, and the first thought in this sociological experiment is that the first person to follow looks the craziest, right? You're just uncertain. If I could attach myself to this person, this seems insane to me. But the law of the second follower is that once one other person joins in, the entire group feels like somehow in some way it's safe. That the social pressure of being that guy that attaches themselves with something that seems outlandish or crazy is now something that is socially acceptable. And so what you see in this law of the second follower, you get that perspective of what ends up happening is that now the the second one's there and then the third one and fourth one. And before you know it, the entire mountain is dancing because one person chose to follow this crazy person that seemed like they were out of line. I think that's what Paul gets at to the end of his life. Here's what he tells many of the people is he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Realize that our lives are worth leveraging for every aspect of it, from the asterisk to the footnotes to the appendix to the challenges that you and I face, that Jesus is the only one that can instrument change in our life, and all of us in some way would have to admit that we want it and need it. And the gospel, through the power of the resurrection, gives us that. 
I would want you to know this morning that the real God can meet the real you in real life for real change. Would you join me as we pray? Father, it is by your kindness and because of your active pursuing love. The cross is not just a demonstration of the willingness to deal finally with sin and completely with sin, that you could say the words on the cross, it is finished and it be true. But the three days in which you spent in the tomb, the resurrection gives us the indication that that is not the final say, that you are a God who is at work in our lives and that the gospel communicates to us that we need daily rescue. We need you to do what only you can do. Father, show us our need for you, and we would ask even this morning that you would help us come to grips with the real God meeting us in real life for real change and bring us into intimate connection with the family of God as we trusted you and the power of the resurrection over our lives. We're grateful that you not only forgive sin, but you bring us into intimacy with you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and respond in worship.